We are in the midst of a series of messages that we have given an overall name for, and it's why we exist as a church. Why are we here? And last time we answered that question by saying that we are here to glorify God. That's the ultimate purpose. We do that by fulfilling uh, a general purpose, which is to complete the ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. We do that by fulfilling the immediate purpose, which is to evangelize the lost and to build or edify the people of God to Christ's likeness. We bring that about by providing opportunities, this is the means, for God's people to encounter God through meaningful worship experiences. And I believe we have that this morning, amen? And also to encounter God through his word, by proper instruction of the word through gifted men. Not just anyone, but those who are gifted to proclaim the word. We encounter the people of God through fellowship, caring for one another. And we encounter the world God loves by being involved in compassionate ministries, home and abroad. That's why we're here, to glorify God by being involved in these different uh, activities. We focused last week also on the message we proclaim. And our text for that is Colossians 1, 28, 29. We proclaim him so that we might present everyone mature or perfect in Christ Jesus. And we try to emphasize that this goes beyond just the message of the death and resurrection of Christ. Now that's essential, of course. That's foundational. But the message of Christ in you the hope of glory that's the message that goes beyond just believing that Christ died for us and was raised again for our justification what happens after that that's the message we proclaim Paul says we proclaim him meaning Christ who is the hope of glory that leads to maturity in Christ it's not just the gospel, but what happens after we receive the gospel that leads us to spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. Unfortunately, so many people stop at the cross. They don't go beyond the Pentecost, where Christ comes again to indwell us so that we might become like him. And so that's our focus. And today, we want to start at the beginning of this message of Christ in us, the hope of glory. And this will be a focus we'll be going on for several months because it's so vital to spiritual maturity. It goes beyond just activities and doing things to what we are becoming and what we are when we have Christ within us. So we want to begin from the very basis of that message, the basic for that message. Take a look at the question that states the focus of my message from the Word of God this morning. We're calling the entire message Transforming Spiritual DNA. But the question that we're going to seek to answer is, what does it mean to be Christian? Now you say, boy, that's really basic. But you know, not too many people know what being Christian means. And you'll see that I believe there's a difference between, in the, today's world, being a Christian and being Christian. All right? What does it mean to be Christian? Now, do you notice anything that would cause you to ask another question before you answer the question? I just gave you the answer, of course. 
There's not an A before Christian in that question. You see, it's not what does it mean to be a Christian, but what does it mean to be Christian? Is there a difference? Well, I hope you came to think this morning because that's what you need to do. Let's see if there's a difference between being a Christian as it's understood today and being Christian. Now, the word Christian means literally a Christ follower or a follower of Christ. Now, when you go to the book of Acts, Dr. Luke tells us that the disciples were first called Christians where? At Antioch first called Christians at Antioch. They were called first disciples. Then the disciples, those who were following Jesus Christ, were called Christians. Now many scholars believe that that's a term of derision when it was originated. In other words, it wasn't a compliment. It was a critical term. These little Christ-like ones, little christ these people trying to be like this. It was a term of derision. This term Christian. The term is only used a couple more times in the Bible. It is used in Luke chapter, by Luke in Acts chapter 26 verse 28. When King Agrippa asked Paul if he thought he could persuade him to become what? A Christian. And then Peter uses it in 1 Peter 4.16. When Peter tells us that we should glory if we suffer as what? A Christian. It is interesting that in the epistles, the word disciple is never used. Never used. It's only used in the Gospels. When you come to the Christians, what is focused on is growth in Christ rather than discipleship. It's an important difference to see because that's where the message of Christ in you, the hope of glory comes in. It talks about becoming more like Christ and it's a growth that takes place. It's not just what we do, but what we are and what we become as a result of what we believe. And so the word is used very little in the scriptures. But here's the point. The term does not describe the nature or character of the person when you say a Christian. It only, follow, it only describes a follower of Jesus. That's how it is first used in Antioch, a follower of Jesus. But now remember, here's the important thing. In our last message, we pointed out that not all who say they are Christians are in fact Christians. In fact, not all who say they are disciples of Jesus are disciples, true disciples. You remember Jesus himself says that. He says, when he taught some real tough truths in John chapter 6, many of the disciples decided not to follow him any longer. In other words, there were believers who were called disciples who were not genuine believers. They were curious, but they did not possess Jesus Christ. And then you have those who possess Jesus Christ who are not committed, who are disciples indeed, true, true disciples. So there is a difference. Simply because you are called a Christian, and you might even be a member of a church, it does not make you a Christian. It does not make you a Christian. And why is that? It's because they do not have the spiritual DNA of Jesus within their lives. And that'll be my first answer to the question, what does it mean to be Christian? A true 
genuine Christian is someone who has the DNA of Jesus within them. Now notice, I'm not saying that a true Christian is someone who believes certain things. Now that is true. But sometimes we only put it on intellectual belief. And we don't put the emphasis on what happens as a result of the belief. And so we take it one step beyond saying, I believe that Jesus died. I believe that he's resurrected. I believe that he died for me and was resurrected for me. Great, but now what happens after that? That's what makes you a Christian. Because you could believe some of those things and still don't rely on Jesus Christ. You can believe that Jesus is the Christ and would, it qualifies you to be a demon. Because even the demons believe it. And they tremble, but they don't rely. And we have a lot of people who are saying that they're Christians, but they only qualify to be demons. Because they do not rely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So a genuine Christian then is someone who has the DNA of Jesus within them. So if I ask you a question sometime, are you Christian? Please don't tell me, well, I believe Jesus died for me and I signed a piece of paper. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking if you have Christ in you as the hope of glory. That's the message we proclaim. Now you might ask, what is DNA? What is a spiritual DNA? Great question. Now here's the formal definition and the familiar graphic of how they function. Now I'm not going to go through all of this. I can't call out the big names for one thing. And also, uh, someone asked a question the other day. Uh, in fact, last week, say, Pastor Lee, you know, a lot of people say that your messages are too intellectual. Well, there is proof of that. But I want you to learn something. There's a truth behind this. All right. By the way, I don't want to tell you anything that's not intellectual. Because anything that's not intellectual is foolishness. So if I tell you something, I hope that it is intellectual. All right? Otherwise, it's foolishness. Right? All right. DNA is the material which carries the hereditary instructions, what we call the blueprint, which determines the formation of all living organisms, including humans. Genes, the organizers of inheritance, are composed of DNA. Now, all that means is that, is that DNA is the stuff that makes a person who he or she is. You have black hair, it's because of your DNA. You have blue eyes, it's because of your DNA. Sometimes when you're thin, it's because of your DNA. As you can see, if you're another thing, but I better don't go in another direction. But if you're too thin, sometimes it's because of DNA. The point is, it's that stuff within you that makes you who you are that you received from your parents. That you received from your parents. The reason why children look like their parents, talk like their parents in some cases, and have all kinds of mannerisms and all of that is because their DNA has been passed on to them. Is that clear? That's all it means. The stuff that makes you what you are that you've got from your parents. That's what we're talking about here. And so then, when I say that you must have Jesus' DNA within you, that's the only way you can become a Christian, I mean then you must have received something from Jesus Christ. Not just receive his word, but you must have received something from Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be Christian then? A true or genuine Christian is someone who has the DNA of Jesus within them. 
This DNA transmits the life of Jesus into the life or spirit of the believing sinner. Well, this is important for you to understand. This is what gives you life, new life as a believer. This life that comes from Jesus Christ. Jesus' DNA is the source of the Christian's life. How do you get that? Well, Jesus says in John 14, 6, what? I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. Now notice, no one comes to the Father but by me. Now if you could stop right there, I guess that means if we don't have the life of Christ, we can't go to the Father. Oh yeah, you can have a church membership. Oh yeah, you can give all your money. Oh yeah, you can do all these nice things. But if you do not have the life of Christ within you, you are not a believer. That's the important thing. Notice what John says in 1 John 5. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. God has given us eternal life. This is the kind of life that we need to live with Him. Has given us eternal life. This life is where? This life is in His Son. That's why Jesus says, I am the life. The one who has the Son has eternal life. Now notice how simple this is. This is a very profound doctrine, but it's simply stated here. The one, who do, the one who has the Son has eternal life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have this eternal life. Do you get it? If you don't have Jesus, you don't have life. If you don't have life, you don't have eternal life. If you don't have eternal life, you don't belong to Christ. You say, but I believe. I don't ask you what you believe. Who do you have? Are you just qualified to be a demon? Or are you trusting your belief? That's the difference. See, notice carefully now, the life we need to live with God is eternal life. The life we need to become a child of God is Christ. It's not a body of doctrine. What we need is Christ. Why? Because He is Christ. He is our life. Our life is found in Christ. Our life is not found in a set of doctrines. It's found in Christ. But let's be clear about one thing. And we have people preaching this today. That's why I want to say this because a lot of you here listen to these people and you even help their ministries. They claim that because they are born again that they are gods, little gods. Because God does not produce puppies. He produces little gods. Puppies do not produce monkeys. They produce little puppies. Therefore, when we're born again, we become little gods. And they'll get right up and tell you that. And you've heard it, haven't you? Sure you have. How many believe it? You wouldn't hold your hand up now, would you? <laughs> but a lot of people teach this. Because they say that we have this divine nature, therefore we are divine also. Since we have eternal life, that means we become like God. Why? Because God has eternal life. Does that make you like God? Does that make you divine? Well, God is eternal. He has always existed. Isn't that right? But has the believer always existed? Well, then you cannot be eternal. Even if you have eternal life, you cannot have the same eternal life as God has. Let me show you a diagram here. This is important. This is very important. Look at that line. That arrow with two arrows on the end. The line represents what I call timeless eternity. This is true of Jesus Christ and God, the Godhead. They 
experience timeless eternity. Never a beginning, never an ending. Right? Now look at the other line. Notice there's one arrow missing, pointing to the past. There's only an arrow pointing to the future. This is what I call time-bound eternity. This is what the believer has. We have eternal life because we partake of the divine nature. But we don't have the divine nature because the divine nature existed for eternity past and eternity future. Isn't that right? But we had a beginning. You understand what I'm saying? And so we are not gods because we have eternal life. We only are like God in our character. You understand what I'm saying? This is important for us to understand. And this is what we have. Yes, we partake of the divine nature. Listen carefully, my friends. Man will never become God. It's impossible for him to do so. Whenever man becomes God, then God is not God anymore. There's only one God, and man is not him or he. One God, and man is not he. But we do share. Now, here's the blessed thing about this. We do share the DNA of God. This is what we call the communicable attributes of God, something he gives to us. We share his traits or attributes to some degree, but not to the full degree that he does. It's important for us to understand that. We partake the divine nature, but we don't have as fully as he does. Is that clear? Is that intellectual? Sure it is. But it's also biblical truth. And you need to understand it if you're going to really appreciate what the message Christ in you, the hope of glory is, that leads to spiritual maturity. Now this life, this eternal life, that comes in, in fact that is Jesus Christ, is quantitative. We just looked at that, so we need to go through it again. But this eternal life is also qualitative. It only, doesn't only have to do with a length of time. It has to do with the kind of life. And Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, The thief comes only to steal and to destroy. I have come so that they may have life, and they might have it more abundantly. That's fullness of life. That doesn't just need more of life. It means a rich life. It means an abundant life because of the relationship with the triune God. We share his eternal life. That's abundant life. It's something that should make the Christian joyful, happy, all the time. Because we are involved in the relationship with the triune God that enables us to share what he is like without becoming him completely. Is that clear? It's abundant life. But this life is also relational in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life. Believe that Jesus is the Christ. Believe that he died and he was raised again. That's not what he says. This is eternal life. That they may know you. Who? The only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice this now. This knowledge is not intellectual. This knowledge is not just a content of doctrine. Now, we're going to find that we come to understand God by reading the scriptures and so on. But this here, this here, what he's talking about, this knowledge, is an intimate knowledge. This is the word know that has carried a sense of intimacy. Adam knew his wife intimate relationship that's what he's talking about here 
an intimate relationship with the triune God. That's eternal life. Christianity, my friends, is not a man-made religion that seeks to find ways that please God so that we can earn his favor. We've taught and preached it so much that way. You have to do this, you have to do that, you have to stop doing this, you cannot do this, and that's how you please God. That's not Christianity. Christianity has to do with a personal, intimate relationship with the triune God. Yes, it's based on the knowledge of who he is that comes through the scripture. But you see, it's that knowledge that leads us into the relationship. It's a relationship that is fueled or kept alive by an ongoing communion with God through the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is where Pentecost comes in. This is where the reverse incarnation takes place. Remember we talked about it at Christmas time. At Christmas, the Word became flesh. At Pentecost, the flesh, us, becomes the Word. Because the Holy Spirit now lives in us and we are to represent Christ in our life. That's Christ in you. The hope of glory. Now when you go through the scriptures, this relationship is described in many ways. Sometimes I hope we have the time to go through each one. For instance, the relationship is described as a branch-vine relationship. Branch-vine. The branch is not the vine. The vine is not the branch. But it's that relationship of communion. The vessel content. In other words, there's a vessel that has something in it. We have Christ within us, but we're not Christ. The temple-God relationship. God lives within us as a temple, but the temple is not God. The head-body relationship. The head is Jesus Christ. We have a body, but the body is not the head. You understand what I'm saying? But the most intimate one in Scripture is the analogy of the wife and the husband relationship. Let me just read you a passage in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Notice now, he's talking about a qualitative love. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church. Now notice, for this cause, this is verse 32, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife. That's where the knowledge comes in, the intimacy. And the two shall become what? One flesh. Now, the he is still the he and the she is still the she, but they're one flesh. Right? The man does not become the woman, and the woman does not become the man, but they become one flesh, one person. That's the same thing with our relationship with Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. Now we get that, that means that I should love my wife the same way I love myself. But that's not really what he's saying. He says you are to love your wife with the realization that she is you. She is yourself. That's what he's saying. You want to love your wife to realize that she is you. She's a part of just one flesh. That's what it means to be a Christian. We are one flesh with Jesus Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus said, I'm going away. I'm going to send another comforter, another Jesus just like me. Only thing in another form. And he's going to be in you. That's how we become one with Jesus Christ. That's how we become his body. 
That's what it means to be a Christian then. One flesh relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul describes it again in Colossians 3, 4 in this way. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see that? Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now notice this. We could say therefore here. When Christ who is our life. Now notice that. Who is our life? Christ is our life. When Christ is who is our life is revealed when he comes back in his glory. Then you also will be revealed with him in glory, the glory he comes back with. Why? Because we are in Christ. And Christ cannot experience anything that we will not or cannot. Do you get that? That's heavy stuff, isn't it? Now, please, when you leave here this morning, don't come and say, boy, that's heavy stuff. I know what you're talking about. See, that's the reason why many of us don't enjoy the true relationship we have with Jesus Christ. Because we don't get into the deep things of God. This is a personal relationship. This is not how much you give to the church. This is not how much you serve. This is not how much you pray and fast. This has nothing to do with that, although it might result in some of that. But it has all to do with realizing within this flesh the triune God abides. He lives. And he wants to live out himself in our lives. Now this kind of life is essential to becoming a Christian. In fact, this is what makes you a Christian. Listen to the words of the apostle in Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. In other words, he says, if the spirit of God lives in you, then you are in the spirit. You have spiritual life in context. Now, notice... If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, this person does not belong to Christ. So when you are asked and when you're trying to find out with a question, please don't ask what you believe first. Find out whether or not you have Christ. Find out if you have the Spirit of God living within you. This has to do with experience. This has to do with relationship. Is the Spirit of God living within you? Because if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't have Christ. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have life. And if you don't have life, you're still in your sin. A real good author, one that I love to read, is J.A. Fowler. This is what he says. The singular reality that constitutes Christian is the presence of the Spirit of Christ in the spirit of the individual who receives him by faith. You see, this is the important aspect it's the spirit of man that is reborn or given new birth, regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Man's spirit, because that's where we have contact with God. Man's spirit, that's got to be alive with the life of Christ. And the same way originally when God breathed into the nostrils of man, and man became a living being, a human being. So when the Spirit of God comes within us, he breathes, as it were, the life of God within our spirit and makes us new creations in Christ. That's why the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
This is how the new, the net Bible says, this new English translation. If any was in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. This is when the believer receives the DNA of Jesus to make him alive in the spirit. Let me read you a couple of more verses in Romans 8, beginning at the same one we looked at in verse 9. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, if he doesn't dwell within you, he does not belong to him, Jesus. And if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead would also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Look at that passage of scripture. Ask the spirit of God to sing that within your soul today. That's so important. The presence of Jesus Christ by his spirit in the Christian is the presence of Christ himself as the spiritual life of the believer. Do you get it? The presence of Christ by his spirit in the Christian is the presence of Christ himself as the spiritual life of the believer. This isn't just something we receive from Christ. This is Christ. This isn't something we believe about Christ. This is Christ. And so I say again, there can be no spiritual life in anyone apart from the presence of Christ being in him by the indwelling of the Spirit. Without his presence within you, without his presence in me, church membership, good works, good morals, good religious activities, such as prayer, fasting, tithing, and whatever else, do not and cannot make you Christian might make you a Christian one who professes but not process but it doesn't make you Christian it's the DNA of Christ himself in you you might be a Christian in appearance but not Christian in spirit and character how then you might ask does one become Christian in other words how is the DNA of Jesus passed on to us I'm really glad that you asked that question Let's look at another verse to give the answer. Titus 3.5 Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Titus calls this passing on of the DNA, regeneration and renewing of and by the Holy Spirit. This is some tremendous truth here. Peter calls it something else. In 1 Peter 1, 3, being born again. He calls it being born again, the same way Jesus did. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now we have the mystery being explained. How is the seed, the DNA of Jesus, passed on to us? You remember when Jesus was born of the virgin? He says, the Holy Spirit has, what, overshadowed you. And that holy thing is the child of God. The overshadowing of the Holy Spirit brought about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It's also the work of the Holy Spirit that brings about 
the rebirth in us. But he uses the word. He uses the word. This is why the word of God is so essential. This is the seed as it were. But who brings life to the seed? It's the Holy Spirit of God. And so the, this is why it's so important that when the gospel is preached, it is preached for what it is, the, the word of God and not the word of man. Because if you preach the gospel as the word of man, you can put all the faith you have in it and still be lost. Because the seed isn't in it. But when the word of God is preached, the seed of God is in it. Now follow this carefully. Because many of you might have to examine yourself to see whether or not you're being the faith today. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to impart the DNA of Jesus into our spirit. It's that encounter that brings life to that seed. And through our belief of that, as it were, it settles in our life. It comes into our being. God the Spirit quickening the Word implants it within our spirit. And Jesus Christ is born in our hearts. Here's how it happens. The total person is involved in this transaction, not just the intellect. The total person. First, the mind of the sinner is enlightened by the Word of God. The mind is enlightened by the Word of God. Three aspects are involved here, and I'll go through them quickly. First, he is convicted that he's a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Spirit of God who is responsible for bringing conviction convicts the sinner that he is a sinner. But it begins in the mind. He is persuaded that his sin separated him from God. Major the sinner's death, separation from God. He realizes that. And it's the Spirit of God that brings that upon him. And then he is convinced that he could not save himself. He realizes that if this salvation is to come, fellowship with God is to come, that not, his works are not sufficient, cannot do it, only God can save him. He's convicted of his sin, he's persuaded that he's separated from God, and he's convinced that he cannot save himself. That has to do with his mind. By the way, repentance comes into a change of mind. But then secondly, his emotions are also involved. His emotions, the emotions of the sinner, were stirred by the love of God. Why? Because of Christ's death on his behalf. He, the love of God is manifested how that Christ died for our sins. And he realizes that the reason why Jesus underwent all of that pain, all of that suffering, was because of God's love for him. And his emotions are touched. He realizes also that the Father's acceptance of Christ's death for him was a tremendous act. In Romans 4, 25, it tells us very clearly that he was raised for our justification. And when the work of the Spirit of God and the life of a sinner who is now enlightened, his heart is touched by the love of God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then finally, his will was activated by a conscious choice. This is the key. You could be convinced, you could be persuaded, and all of that, and you can still be lost. You have to make an action. Now, this action does not save you, mind you. It's only Jesus who saves. But this is the process you have to go through in order to do it. 
Your will must be activated by a conscious choice. In other words, a rational decision. This is why it's so important to explain the gospel carefully. So many people invite individuals to come to Jesus. You want a wife or husband? Come to Jesus. You having financial problems? Come to Jesus. All those people who come to Jesus for those things are not saved. What saves us is the realization that we are sinners, we are separation from God, and we can do nothing to save ourselves. It's a rational decision was made based on the objective truth of the Word of God, which we call the Gospel, to place faith in Christ alone by relying exclusively upon His death and resurrection as a basis for our salvation. My point is this. Faith involves three basic elements. Accurate information, acceptance or consent of that information, and a decisive reliance or trust on that, on that information you agree upon. In other words, the demons have done two of these steps, but not the third one because none of them are relying on Jesus Christ. Many people, yeah, I believe the gospel. Yeah, I accept that. And that's it. That doesn't save you. Your reliance. Billy Graham always used to explain it this way. This great um, uh, fellow who used to walk across the Niagara Falls on a piece of rope. He'd walk across, come back again. He'd take a wheelbarrow, run across, come back. How many believe I can put a man in this wheelbarrow and roll him across? I believe, I believe. Okay, come. I want you to get in the wheelbarrow. You see, if someone gets up and sits in that wheelbarrow, that's reliance. That's trust. That's faith. No matter how much he believes objectively in that, unless he sits in that wheelbarrow, he does not really believe. You understand what I'm saying? That's why it's so important for us to rely. And the whole person is, can, is involved. The mind, the emotions, the, the will. The Holy Spirit germinates to receive word in such a way that the DNA of Jesus is conceived or passed on to us so that we become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers. Take another look at Romans 5.10. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death. See, that's what we preach. The death of Jesus Christ causes us to be reconciled to God and be accepted. That's where we stop. But he doesn't, that's not the message that Paul was preaching in Colossians about Christ and you, the hope of glory. Much more. What does it say? In other words, there's a little further. There's something else that goes beyond just believing that Jesus died and was raised for me and I'm reconciled to God. There's something that goes beyond that that leads to Christian maturity. What is it? Having been reconciled, having been saved initially, we shall be saved by his life. Not his death. And that's what Christ is doing with us if we have living in us. He's saving us every day from our sins. It's his life in us that causes us to become Christ's life. Not just saying, yes, I believe this. Yes, I believe that. His death brings reconciliation. Praise the Lord. But his life brings us ongoing salvation. Freedom from sin and the power of sin. And so for today, 
I'm not even going to ask you then if you're saved. That's past tense. But I'm going to ask you today, are you being saved? Today. But you still have that habit. Man, I don't know. I can't get rid of that habit. I don't know. I just can't do that. It doesn't seem that God has given me the power. Oh, yes, it's there. Don't blame God for it if you're still in that addiction. Don't blame God. His life is in you. And it means for that life, he means for that life to give you all that you need to become like him. Oh, yes, there are going to be struggles. But you're going to be leaning on him. Not on yourself or anyone else. So my question to you is not, are you saved? But are you being saved? Are you a better husband? More loving, more kind, more gracious? Are you a more honest person? Or do you still lie? When your boss say, tell that woman, I'm not here. Tell that man, I'm not here. Oh, I got to do to save my job. See, you're putting a job before pleasing Christ. That's not Christ in you. He is in us to make us more Christ-like on an ongoing basis. And so that's what the DNA of Jesus does within us. It provides the kind of eternal life we need to live like Christ every day of our lives. I want you to just read these scriptures. I'm going to look at them. I'm going to read them with you. And then I'll leave it. And I hope you see this fantastic truth that is presented here. Hebrews 3. For we have become partakers of who? Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Hebrews 6.4 For in this case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the holy, heavenly gift and have been made partakers of who? First partakers of who? Christ. Now partakers of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 1.4 For by these, that's the word of God, he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of what? The divine nature, God himself. Do you understand what I'm saying? We are partakers of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's because every person who truly trusts, relies upon Christ, has the DNA of Jesus within him and the whole trinity lives within us. That's why we can say, I can do all things through Christ. We do not possess the deity, as I said. We partake of it to make us Christ-like in our life. That's what it means to be Christian. So ask yourself this today. Are you simply a Christian? Or are you Christian? There's a difference, I repeat, in being a Christian and being Christian. The difference is the true source of our life. And we're going to speak more of this in other messages. And so as I close today, though, I ask you once more. Are you merely a Christian? Or are you Christian? I can tell you we can find the answer. Don't even look in the Bible for this one. Look in the mirror. Your life will be the answer as to whether or not you are a Christian or whether or not you're Christian. Whether or not you have the DNA of Christ in you or you're just walking around professing 
possessing. The DNA of Christ transforms us into Christ-likeness. And that's the message we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That leads to Christ-likeness. Please bow in a word of prayer. Please just take a few seconds. If God has spoken to you in any way, you need to make a commitment, a confession, please do that right now. You've never really relied upon Jesus and Him alone as the basis for your salvation. Do that now. Perhaps today you realize that you've only been living a pharisaical life. You've been making a profession but you really haven't possessed Christ at all because your life doesn't show it. Your life doesn't show it. You're still in your sin. You're just still acting like the unsaved person. Confess that to God now and ask the Spirit of God to do a work of regeneration in your life. Father, thank you for the promise of your word that it will not return void. It will accomplish the purpose to which you sent it forth. May there be life in the spirit of some today because of your word. And all of God's people said,